according to His promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Proverbs 19 once again. We're looking at uh, really the first three verses, uh, 4, 5, and 6, even down to verse 7. And um, yeah, we'll see how far we get with it here this morning. Before we do get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, ask for God's faithfulness to guide and shape our thinking, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege that we have to assemble together. We thank you for your faithfulness to watch over us, to protect us every day, every moment. We ask for your blessings to continue uh, for this hour, that you would hinder anyone from coming in here and bringing us to harm or stopping what we're doing. Father, we just know that the days are getting darker, and uh, I thank you that we can be wise as serpents, yet harmless as doves. So Father, this day is yours. Teach us, feed us, bless us. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Proverbs 19. We've had a couple of classes in this chapter already. Uh, We start with a better than. You remember the first three verses are linked together in a way that is kind of unusual uh, as far as this goes. We're accustomed to one verse having an A and a B part. Occasionally a pair of verses will, uh, will combine together in the poetry with an A part and a B part. In this case, we've got a trio. We've got a triplet of verses, uh, one, two, and three, and it's probably best to just think of them as A, B, C, D, E, and F. Just break down the, the three verses into six half verses and, uh, and then just take them as that. And you can label the half verses with A, B, C, D, E, F and, uh, and take it from there. Because what we have is we have better as a poor man who walks in his integrity. We have the good statement. Walking in integrity is good. Even if you're poor, it's still good. You don't sacrifice your integrity for the sake of making money. And so the A part, which is really the first half of verse 1, that's the good part. The other five that follow are not good. They are the consequences of abandoning integrity. And so we talk about the perverse in speech and the fool. Yes, this is point one. Chapter 19 begins with three verses warning to uh, maintain personal integrity no matter the cost. And then we have the unstable life of of no integrity that has five descriptions. And we worked our way through these five. The perverted speech, no knowledge of soul, the hurried footsteps. This was last week we were talking about the hurried footsteps. I hope I didn't go too fast teaching this material. The the blessings that we have to slow down, to wait upon the Lord, to quiet our hearts. And, uh, you know, we already have eternal life. Why are we in such a rush? We should let our thinking start to adapt itself to the eternal perspective that allows us to to take our time, process the information, and uh, proceed accordingly. The ruined way, the Hebrew verb salaf, and the raging heart, the verb zaf, and this is uh, really the fifth one is kind of the pinnacle or the the summary of all five put together. 
but the, uh, the unstable uh, heart, the raging way that is such a description of instability, which uh, we should have no part of. The blessings of salvation and the blessings of living in the Word of God are such that it provides stability. We are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We are rooted and grounded in the faith. And that rooting and grounding is stability. We can be so thankful for that. So we move past these three verses. We then get to verse 4, which is really verses 4, 6, and 7. The poetry doesn't link them so much as the subject matter that links them. Dealing with finances, dealing with money. Friendship can live and die based on money. And uh, when you have money, then the friendship is alive. And when the money is gone, uh, it's amazing. The friends just peel away and go elsewhere. And you end up with friendship death, or what's called separation here. Verse 4, wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. And when we remember that separation is the fundamental concept that underlies any form of death that we examine in the scriptures, then we can refer to this as a friendship death. That uh, you, there's a separation in the friendship based upon the, uh, the uh, ending of the, of the money. The poor man is separated from his friends. Likewise, verses 6 and 7, many will seek the favor of a generous man and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. And so again, it's the way this world works. It's the, uh, the description of this fallen world. It's a fallen world with fallen people, with sinners. And, uh, and it so happens that money is one of the best ways that Satan uses. The love of money becomes the root of all sorts of evil. And Satan uses this to uh, accomplish the things that he does. Uh, verse 7, all the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends abandon him? He pursues them with words, but they are gone. And so uh, you end up with what you're dealing with. All right. So as was studied in Proverbs 14, 20, this fa- in this fallen world, friendships live and die based on money. So it's a concept we've studied before. Today is really much of a review on that. Proverbs 14, 20, the poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. And uh, the contrast of rich and poor, the contrast of love and hate, the uh, concept of love your neighbor, which is not optional, which is not uh, income dependent. It doesn't say love your rich neighbors, it says love your neighbor. And so if you find yourself hating your poor neighbor, that's that's a problem. That's contrary to the will of God and that's a, that's a relative scale anyway. Any human wealth is going to be on a relative scale. And we should be functioning on the eternal scale. We should be functioning in the absolutes of uh, the family of God and the Word of God on that basis. All right. Well, we have a good illustration for this as Jesus taught with respect to the prodigal son. He is the illustration for this truth. When he had his inheritance, when he had all the money in the world, then he could live it up and he could live with the the riotous living, the profligate living that is uh, the the prodigal. Uh, When the money uh, dries up, and then the hard times come, the famine hits the land, what, 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 is he, what kind of friends does he have at that point? He has no friends. There is no one looking out for him. All he can do is hire himself out and become uh, essentially a, uh, I mean the, a hireling had such a low uh, regard because in the ancient world especially, let's be honest, in the ancient world especially 
when slavery was normal, it was much better just to get a slave to do it. Why, uh, why, why use a hireling? Day labor was a rough, rough road. And the, the kind of nefarious folks that, were, uh, that would hire themselves out for this kind of income were in some ways esteemed worse than slaves related to the, uh, the social class of the time. Anyway, Luke 15 has the story there and, uh, and those issues. Abandonment by friends and family during difficult times is among the most difficult of human tests. And uh, for this we can turn to the book of Job and we can read his lamentation when he speaks of that in Job 19 verses 13 through 17. I think we, we looked at last week but we can refresh our thinking on it. Job 19 and of uh, course everyone assumes that uh, you've done something wrong and you're under God's judgment and uh, of course, in Job's case, that was not accurate. It was undeserved suffering. <clears throat> and so for a friend to stick closer than a brother at this point would have been a good thing, but nobody did. Verse 13 says, He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed. My intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. I am a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he does not answer. I have to implore him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even young children despise me. I rise up, and they speak against me. All my associates abhor me, and those I love have turned against me. And so we have the, uh, really the lamentation on this, and, and uh, it's just it is what it is. Uh, my bone clings to my skin of my flesh and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Um, that's right. We read this last week. We saw where this expression comes from. The, the skin of my teeth comes right from here. Pity you, O you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Anyway, all of that is to say it gives way to a marvelous promise uh, this is what keeps lamentation from becoming uh, grumbling, becoming uh, completely off the rails in the murmuring and the despair. If it's a legitimate lamentation, then you will stop and reflect upon the faithfulness of God. And that's what Job does when he knows that there's a resurrection in front of him. When he knows that he has a Redeemer, he reminds himself that as rotten as this life can be, the next life is the one we're, we're headed for anyway. And so I can appreciate that. And that's, uh, again, a powerful passage in Job 19 that starts in verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. <laughs> well, guess what, Job? They are. They're in a book. We're reading it right now, thousands of years later. And uh, it's a marvelous thing. In verse 25, he says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. And this is significant because there's no Bible yet when Job is alive. There's no, Moses isn't alive yet, the, the Pentateuch hasn't been written, there's no Genesis, there's no Hebrew Bible, anything. But he knows he has a Redeemer. And he knows it's a personal Redeemer. He knows that humanity has fallen and must be saved. And he knows that in the future there is a resurrection. He says, at the last he will take his stand on the earth. So he's got, a, he's got a soteriology and he has an eschatology, but he doesn't have a Bible. How great is this? How much doctrine did they have in the post-flood patriarchal era, the time between Noah and, uh, and Abraham? I think they had quite a bit. 
He says in verse 26, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. It is a bodily resurrection. It is a transformation of this present fallen body that is resurrected and glorified on the last day. Whom I myself should behold, whom my eyes will see, and not another. There is one. Job could have written that hymn that I long to meet my Savior most of all. Okay? That's the one we want to see first and foremost. My eyes shall see and not another. My heart faints within me. Anyway, this is uh, an interesting glimpse that we have of Old Testament theology related to these things. But the, the passage applying to our class this morning though, is the one before that, verses 13 through 17, where we understand abandonment by friends and family. You know, on top of the other tests, I mean, it just is a way of multiplying the test. Because the financial test is a test all by itself. Learning how to get along in humble means, learning how to abound, learning the secret of contentment, learning how to function regardless or whatever the financial spectrum God places you in, that's a test. We have to, we have to keep our eyes on the Lord and stay faithful no matter the economics. And that becomes, that's a test by itself. Then you add on top of it all these fair-weather friends that start abandoning you left and right. And now the test is, is multiplied. And this is what uh, James talks about when he says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. That uh, it's never just one at a time. That they interlock, they connect, they add to one another. And at a certain point, you know, there's a straw that would break the camel's back, but it doesn't break our back because God is still faithful. And He never tests us beyond what we're able to bear. And with the testing, He provides the way of escape. Now with respect to how the fallen world operates, There's an interesting message our Savior gives, and that's what I want to talk about today, because Jesus spoke about making friends by the wealth of mammon. And he actually framed it in a positive light. And so for this we need to turn over to Luke 16 and verse 9. And so we understand, based on Proverbs, that when you have money, you'll be a magnet for multiplying your friends. But those friends will abandon you when the money dries up, so they're not really the best of friends, or they're not the kind of friends you want to keep in most circumstances. You want to, you want to be aware of what their thinking is. Similar to, I think, a, a concept uh, in John chapter 2 where Jesus was speaking and many came to believe in him, but for his part he was not entrusting himself to them for he knew what was in man. He knew what, their, what uh, some of their motivation was, uh, was like. And I think we have something similar here in Luke 16, 9. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. In other words, mammon. Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of mammon. So that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. They will receive you into the eternal dwellings. All right, now this takes some work uh, because it's really a negative thing in Proverbs when we see the fair weather friends abandoning you and we see uh, those kind of things. Let's back up even further. This whole section is dealing with an unrighteous steward. And an unrighteous steward, when we get to the end of the study, we want to see, uh, we want a different outcome than what Jesus presents here. At least I do. Maybe I'm alone in this, but uh, we can take a survey when we're done and see what you guys think. But uh, Backing up to the top of the chapter, it says, 
He was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And so the manager is a steward, a manager of the household, someone that's entrusted with these responsibilities. Very similar to what we are in the church. We're stewards of God's grace. And so we would look at this passage, by the way, also in stewardship studies. Problem is, if you've got a faithless steward, what happens? You get rid of them. <laughs> it is required of a steward to be found faithful. If you're not faithful, you're gonna, you're gonna, uh, the, the one who appointed you as a steward is going to fire you. All right, so he called him, that's the rich man called the steward, called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management for you can no longer be manager. And so we're, I think we're clear so far. Uh, anybody would do this. Any rich man would, doesn't want to get robbed and, and uh, he's losing money uh, based on this uh, faithless manager squandering the possessions. So now the manager says to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. <laughs> so there's no good options. You know, he says I could go A or B and I don't like either one of them. And uh, what can I do? What can I do without this stewardship? Now remember, he is an unrighteous steward. And uh, he is, uh, he's not saved. He's not thinking from divine viewpoint. He's not reflecting. Uh, and yet he gets praised at the end of this. So what shall I do? I know what I shall do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. Now this is key because this is the language that gets adapted in verse 9. And so we're taking the metaphor, we're taking the the parable, and Jesus brings it to our application in, in a real way, a very real way. So um, he's on the verge of getting fired. He knows that there's no good account that he can give. But then he comes up with a plan. And uh, so he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And basically his plan is, is his parachute. <laughs> it's what's, where is he going to land? How is he going to land? And he's not even really thinking that he can possibly please the master. He's thinking there is nothing he can do in human effort that's going to please the master. And so he's abandoning that thought altogether. And he's just looking now for his next uh, meal ticket or his next uh, uh, gravy train or whatever. He's looking for somewhere to land is what he's looking for. Somebody that will be favorable for him where he can crash at their place. They will welcome me into their homes. That's what he's looking for. It'll be a roof over his head if, you know, if nothing else. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors and he began to say to the first, how much do you owe my master? And then Again, we want to look, we want, we want more information than the text gives us, so we can't, we have, to, we have to limit ourselves to what the text says. We can't invent things or throw things in there, but we're still left wondering, um, is this a debt that the master knew about? Is this a debt the master didn't know about? We don't know. And I don't know that it really affects the, the interpretation, but nevertheless, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill, Sit down quickly and write 50. So he's, he's chopping it off. 
cutting the losses, so to speak. And, uh, and, and, and really, he's, is this stealing from the, from the master? The master's losing half of his outstanding debt. But he's also clearing the paperwork. He's also clearing the, the balance sheet, and he's at least getting something out of it. Maybe half is more than the master was expecting to get at all. And he said, uh, then he said to another, verse 7, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. Now why did he cut the first one down to uh, 50 and he cut the second one down to 80? We don't know. (laughs) All right, He had some kind of reason for doing it. We don't know. Maybe he knew what the guy was capable of paying. Maybe he knew uh, what would be an acceptable loss to the master. Maybe he knew. He knows things we don't know. That's, that's clear. Because we don't have all the specifics and we don't need to have all the specifics. But the fact that the numbers are different is significant. And this steward, this this uh, manager, he uh, he's on target with these numbers. Anyway, there's also some people that speculate that he knew the answer before he asked. When he's, when he's asking how much do you owe, he knows the answer. He's acting like he doesn't. Anyway. Um, so we've had the first one, we had the second one. Uh, the first markdown was to 50, the second markdown was to 80, the third one. Um, See, I'm trying to speed read this and I'm messing it up. All right. So the first one is down to 50. The second one is down to 80. And there is no third one. Okay. Then verse 8. So his master praised the unrighteous manager. And this is where we put, we we throw on the brakes and we say, whoa, wait a minute. (laughs) There's praise for this. I don't know that I would praise my steward for this. You know, I'm already firing him and I'm already wanting him to give me a good reason not to fire him. And it seems like he's ripping me off by chopping one guy down 50%, chopping another guy down 20%. But the master's pleased with it. So now I've got to realize, okay, there's more here than I understand on the surface. His master praised the unrighteous manager, and there's clear language. He's unrighteous. He's not saved. He's the unrighteous manager, but he's still getting praised. And then it's also commented on here because he acted shrewdly for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And that verse says a lot. That verse says that um, it's a fallen world and fallen people Um, are more attuned, they're more native, that's their realm, that believers, maybe, uh, you know, the sons of light, we used to be a part of that realm, we used to think that way, live that way, walk that way, eat, eat, breathe, sleep, that used to be our mode of thinking, but we've been saved out of that. We're now sons of light. We're now new creatures in Christ. We have the Word of God transforming our thinking. We function as we do uh, in, the, uh, in the wisdom from above. And we're not as shrewd. We're still supposed to have some shrewdness to be shrewd as serpents yet harmless as doves. There, there, is a, 
there is still a dynamic in which we are sanctified, we are righteous, but we're not idiots. We're not naive. We're not, we know about this fallen world. And uh, we have to train up our children to know about this fallen world. We have to, you know, raise our girls to, to be on guard against the certain kind of men that are going to be, uh, the certain kind of men that are going to be, uh, you know, wanting things from them and, and so forth. All right. Acting shrewdly. But the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind. So when it comes to the, the dynamic between uh, unbelievers and unbelievers, that shrewdness, business acumen, um, some of the deceit that happens in business, you know, when you're haggling over the prices and the, and, uh, the seller, you know, is going on and on. He's, how is he going to feed his seven children if he's going to, you know, drop his price that much? And, the, and uh, he doesn't have seven children, but he's, he's saying that as he's trying to get pity from the buyer and the, the buyer thinks he's getting ripped off. And so you're both negotiating for the lowest price you possibly can. The buyer wants the lowest price. The seller wants the highest price. All right. Anyway, as far as the shrewd dealings of the fallen world and unbelievers go, um, we are at a disadvantage. And Jesus is flat flat out saying that. And it's a good thing. We wouldn't want to think that way, live that way, work that way. Right? And yet, and yet, The uh, what was I going to say? There was a big yet coming up. Oh, it's not a bad idea if somebody like this is working for you, right? Is that the white Honda coming in, Chris? Maybe that's a that's a license plate we want to see, Doug. All right. We're being very careful these days, and you're going to start noticing some new procedures in place, like locked doors and people sitting in corners and things like that. So don't worry about it. <laughs> We're actually more concerned about Sunday mornings than Wednesday mornings, but there's uh, more security on. We're going to have security all the time. Don't worry about it. All right. Can you hire an unbeliever? to fix your car? Can you hire an unbeliever to uh, run your business? Can you run a, a business manager? Do you care if he's saved or unsaved? You know, when the, when the heart surgeon is saving your life, uh, are you okay with him being an unbeliever? You know, at, at a certain point in this world, we're looking for skill sets in this world. And when Jesus says, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, he is actually bringing this into the application now, whereby we use the world, but we don't make full use of the world. Does that make sense? In fact, we saw that text in, in uh, I think it was in Corinthians. We, we use the world, but we don't make full use of the world. And, as, and we're not using them as a dodge. We're not saying, you know, um, I can't do this, so here I want, you know, we're not paying a, a dirty accountant to cheat on our taxes for us. Not at all. But if we do happen to have a guy that has a business shrewdness, that's going to benefit us. 
Now, uh, so his master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. So somebody like that working for you can be a temporal benefit. But then Jesus says, now I say to you, this is now the whole point to telling the story is to give the application over, make friends for yourselves by means of mammon, by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. So he's saying those people understand the Understand the priorities they have. Don't be ignorant of those priorities that, that they have. And don't be afraid to make friends with those kind of people. So that when it fails, when, when's it going to fail? Well, it can, well, obviously the money runs out when you die, but even before that, when it fails... Remember, we can't fix our hope on the uncertainty of riches. When it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Why would they do that? Receive you into the eternal dwellings. Why would they do that? Well, I think this is the, I think this is the thing. Understand their priorities. Continue to live your priorities. Don't worry about making friends. And you should make friends. You're going to have those kind of friends. And if they're the fair-weather friends that abandon you, hey, that's what happens. But during the time that you have them, what can you be doing? You can be functioning in such a way that they are going to think about you. That's the whole point here, remember? This steward wants these people to think about him. When I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. They're going to have a positive appraisal of this guy. Now, they're going to have a positive appraisal for for their own carnal reasons. And the friends we make, they may have a positive appraisal of us for the wrong reasons. (laughs) Okay? But if there's a chance in having that relationship with these people that we can give them the gospel, that we can communicate eternal life then they are going to end up at the same eternal dwellings I'm going to end up in. Because unlike this steward who had no certainty of where he was going to land when he bounced, (laughs) or where he was going to end up, you and I have no uncertainty about where we're going to end up. You and I have an absolute certainty of where we're going to end up. And the disciples Jesus is preaching to, they know where they're going. There's no uncertainty for where they're going to end up. So the whole point about making these kind of friends and the hope that we'll have fellowship in the eternal dwellings means that we're keeping the, the avenue open for evangelism. We're keeping the avenue open for this friendship for them to at least consider uh, what, what we have to say. Does that make sense? And so the parallel of uh, welcome me into their homes it's not a true parallel because their homes is not eternal, the eternal dwellings of verse 9. That's the difference. The, the unrighteous steward didn't know where he was going to land and was just hoping to have a place. We know where we're going to land and we're hoping that they will come with us. We're hoping to have them in heaven. In any event, I, I do know Christians that 
prefer to not know any unbelievers, that prefer, they insist that uh, everybody they deal with, their doctor, their lawyer, their uh, grocery store clerk, their automobile mechanic, their uh, accountant, their whatever, you name it, we've got an assortment of people we have to deal with in life, and, and they, uh, there are folks that insist that every single time they're going to be a believer. And, and you know, I mean, fine, you can do that if you want, but uh, if you do have dealings with unbelievers, that gives you an opportunity to have a witness and a testimony and, and, uh, and share Christ and, and maybe show a perspective that they don't have. At least you give them something to talk about because maybe they don't know any believers either. <laughs> and uh, you might be the only one they encounter. So anyway, mammon will make the friends all on its own and Jesus tells his disciples, don't be afraid of that. Go ahead and make friends by means of mammon. It may provide the gospel opportunity. They may spend eternity with you. And uh, wouldn't that be a marvelous thing? Beyond this, point D, the eternal reality is that the body of Christ has infinite wealth in Christ. So the relative scales of this world's goods is often beside the point. The relative scale of this world's goods is often beside the point. The friends that come, the friends that go, the money that comes, the money that goes. Let's put things on an eternal scale. I know the slide says the body of Christ, but and so that's New Testament, but really it's all believers of any stewardship. It was true for the Old Testament saints as well. Moses uh, departed from the wealth of Egypt. He was looking for the reward. And so it's always been the case that believers in the Word of God have an eternal view of things, and so they uh, won't be uh, seduced by the, uh, the uncertainty of riches. They won't be tied down by the thorns of this world. But I think it's mo- even more so in the body of Christ. In the New Testament, the wealth that we have in the church age, the spiritual wealth that we have in the church age is far, far beyond anything an, an Old Testament believer would even dream of on the eternal scale. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 through 23 is uh, a passage I often go to in this concept. Verse 18 says, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Wise in this age. Remember, this world's wisdom is foolishness before God. So uh, if you think you're wise in this age, uh, that, that could be a problem. That, that could mean that you are advancing in uh, satanic shrewdness. And uh, you're, you're neglecting that part about uh, being shrewd as a serpent, yet harmless as a dove. And you're you're dumping the dove, and you're going full serpent shrewdness. That's not good, <laughs> okay. And uh, whatever whatever worldly wisdom you accumulate has to be grounded in God's wisdom as a, as a foundation. So become foolish, so that you may become wise, so that you have divine norms and standards. You have the biblical wisdom. You have the true foundation, whereby then yes, you can have secular wisdom as well. 
but it's secular wisdom that's grounded in biblical wisdom. I hope I'm making sense this morning. Is this, is this coming through? All right. And then it says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. It is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Now when you measure wealth and you measure riches and, and, uh, and you have two people side by side and one person is richer than the other person because he has more cash, he has more money, he has more wealth, he has more assets, his assets uh, outrank his liabilities. And so, you know, and so we have these human expressions and they're all relative. And then you find out, wait a minute, I have everything. Oh, that's quite a bit. <laughs> How rich are you when you have everything? It kind of removes, it kind of makes the relative scale irrelevant. It, it makes it beside the point. If all things belong to you, well in what way do all things belong to me? Because Jesus is the heir of all things and I'm in Christ. All things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, those were the things that divided the uh, the church there in Corinth. But plug in anything else that divides people today. People get all upset because uh, somebody has something and they want it. That's a dividing issue. Well, why should they have this? Why should they? Why don't I have this? I should deserve this. And so, uh, you know, we could talk about. We don't have to talk about Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. We could talk about incomes. We could talk about uh, salaries. We could talk about you know, comparing one against another as if something's wrong or something's unfair or something's better. But understand all things belong to you and you belong to Christ. So whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. The belonging speaks to the ownership, speaks to the wealth and we have all of it. We have infinite wealth in Christ, in the Father, if we have the eternal reality, if we have the eternal perspective. And so we don't get all wrapped up about the temporal things. We don't live and die based upon um, you know, the ups and downs of the stock market or the, the, uh, the uh, GDP or whether we go into recession or other things. We have, we have a healthy you know, secular awareness. We're not oblivious to the environment. We, uh, we, we understand that uh, markets do what they do and you know if we bought gold at, or if we bought silver at $20 an ounce we're not going to sell it at 17 an ounce or if we do we know we're taking a loss we'll probably hold it and get the higher, the higher rate. What I'm saying is we, we can still have secular wisdom but it's going to be grounded in God's wisdom and then we're going to relax about it because on an eternal scale we own everything anyway. And it's all getting burned up. This world is the temporary one. The next one is the one that's permanent. (laughs) Anyway. I hope this makes sense. So all things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. So how rich are we? Infinitely. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The unfathomable riches of His grace. Just when we think we can start to fathom them, we're reminded that they're unfathomable. Different things there. All right. 
You know, when I was little, I'd lost a tooth. Fell off my bike, tooth fell out. And uh, Dennis said, no, no biggie, it was a baby tooth anyway, you got another one coming in, don't worry about it. Later, I, I fell off my bike, broke another tooth. I was popping wheelies in the gutter. Anyway, smacked my face against a, a curb, broke that one off, and that was not a baby tooth. So that was the permanent tooth. Oh, that's a bigger deal. So then I had to have you know an artificial thing put in there and all the stuff. The illustration is this life is not the permanent life, so who cares? Okay? This whole world, this whole life, this whole body, this whole existence is like baby teeth falling out anyway. It's the resurrection body. It's the new heavens and new earth. That's the permanent one. That's forever. That's the glory. And and that's the one with no sin, no death, no crying, no pain. The first things have passed away. So in all of the financial up and downs and personal relationship up and downs and all the other testing that we deal with, all the travails in this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus said it. But oh well. Because this temporary light affliction is not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. I think that's a big part of why Jesus said, go ahead and make friends by means of the wealth of man and who cares? It's all going away anyway. Keep Keep the evangelism opportunity open. The day may come that they'll join you in the eternal dwellings. Wouldn't that be awesome? As far as that goes. All right. Let's get on to verse 5. Proverbs 19.5. And it also, the poetry doesn't connect them, but the subject matter does. So we're going to handle both 5 and 9 as a unit. Proverbs 19.5 and 19.9. We have two explicit will not statements. And these two explicit will not statements are directed against the liar. The liar who made five I will statements. But those I will statements are being answered here by two will not. (laughs) Will to, will not. All right. Proverbs 19.5, a false witness will not go unpunished might seem like it. Sometimes it sure seems like sinners are getting away with everything. And God says, oh no, no, never. Not, not forever, not eternally. A false witness will not go unpunished and he who tells lies will not escape. In this case, it's uh, parallel. It's uh, uh, synonymous parallelism. The A part and the B part are, are effectively saying the same thing. So it's being repeated twice. Uh, the false witness is equal to the one who tells lies and is and the uh, not go unpunished is equated with will not escape. So in other words, when the punishment is administered, it is an eternal punishment for which there is no getting out. There's no second chance after death. There's no purgatory. There's no, uh, when, you, when you are facing the eternal punishment, it is certain and it is inescapable. Now in verse 9, the A part is identical to 5A. A false witness will not go unpunished. The B part is slightly different. He who tells lies will perish. And this is the language of eternity. This is the language of, of uh, whoever believes in Christ will not perish, 
but will have eternal life. Remember, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. In the uh, Hebrew, it's abad. The, uh, the Hebrew word for perishing, the Hebrew word for destruction. The angel of the, of the pit is called Abaddon. He is the king of the abyss. His name is Abaddon. In Greek, he is called Apollyon, the destroyer. And so this is, uh, this is the destiny of the liar. And this is the destiny of the fallen angels that follow the liar. And this is the destiny of fallen humanity. Because uh, as Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. He was a liar from the beginning. You desire to do the things of your father. Remember, when we come to scriptures like this and we're talking about like the Ten Commandments, we're talking about not bearing false witness. It's, uh, it's the, 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 the surface basic baby level doctrine is uh, tell the truth, quit telling lies. Okay? And that's easy enough. Okay? And that'll preach, and you can preach that to any believer uh, of all age levels. You can uh, teach this to three-year-olds, because three-year-old, two-year-olds, I mean, they know how to lie. And so uh, don't tell lies, tell the truth, learn, learn the difference between the truth and the lie, and so forth. You get to more intermediate and advanced levels of doctrine, you start to realize that the issues of truth and, and falsehood, like the issues of life and death, are, are essential to the nature of God himself and to the nature of his adversary, our father, uh, you know, the unbeliever's father, the devil. Which is why he was a murderer from the beginning, and he was a liar from the beginning. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Which is why in God's system, lying is equal to murder. And you could have the death penalty in both cases. Bearing false witness can get you executed in God's judicial system. Which is interesting because watching impeachment proceedings yesterday I saw, I heard several lies being spoken. And I thought, wow. Where is the law of Moses when you need it? (laughs) Anyway, different story. Not to get political. All right. These will not statements are directed against the liar. And I put that in capital L, uh, representing Satan, representing the father of lies. And, uh, and as such, I think we have some interesting principles here as it relates to, uh, to these things. You will not go unpunished. You will not escape. And the you will not escape is parallel with you will perish. Verse 5b parallel to verse 9b you will not escape equals you will perish. And what we learn throughout the scripture is that that punishment is eternal. It is eternal destruction. It never reaches the point of destroyed. It never reaches the point of done and no longer existing. It is an eternal destruction. Something that boggles our mind because if something is consumed, if something is burning, it's consumed. But then uh, Moses was brought to a burning bush and God taught him, you know what? Things can burn and not be consumed. Things can burn eternally if God wants them to burn eternally and not be consumed. And so for the theology out there that preaches annihilationalism, that preaches that eventually the, uh, the, the lost will be nowhere, the lost will be nothing, 
that is an unbiblical view of the eternal destruction. It was sometimes called eternal conscious torment, ECT. And the biblical view is ECT. Uh, but postmodernism doesn't like that. Our modern sensitivities uh, view eternal conscious torment as um, cruel and unusual punishment, as sadistic, as God is a monster, the, the moral monster that orders uh, extermination of, of people groups and, and so forth. Anyway, that's what we have to deal with when we're talking about uh, you know, unbelievers that hate God anyway, and they're not going to be... There are answers to these things too, by the way, but um, you try convincing a postmodern person that the wrath of God is righteous and just. <laughs> and loving. It's loving. How evil would it be to, uh, to, uh, to not send them to the lake of fire? That's the destiny that's compatible with their fallen nature. And so I believe the love of God casts every unbeliever into the eternal fire. All right, so let's uh, see how far we can get with this because these are some big picture ideas. Let's look at John eight forty four. Let's see the uh, hostility here and the antithesis of God the Father with Satan. Remember, Satan hates Jesus, but Satan's main goal is to counterfeit God the Father. He said, I will be like the Most High God. Satan views himself as an alternative to God the Father. Not, he's not an alternative to God the Son. He's going to procreate his own alternative to God the Son in the person of Antichrist. Satan is the father of Antichrist. But Satan views himself as the counterfeit, as the alternative, the better God than God. So John 8, 44, when Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. Now there's verses that lead up to that as they were discussing fathers. They kept uh, getting very insistent that they had Abraham for a father. Back to verse, uh, well, even before that, um, Jesus starts to tweak them here with this. I love how he never backs down and he just keeps speaking truth. Look how many times he references his father in this uh, in this chapter. Um, anyway, you're going to notice several of the contrasts here. He keeps talking about his father. Verse 18, it is, uh, I am he who testifies about myself and the father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, where is your father? And Jesus said, you know neither me nor my father. Remember, that's the definition of eternal life. This is eternal life that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. They tried to seize him, but they weren't able to. And then um, he mentions his father again. Says uh, verse 28. Or even verse 26. I have many things to speak and judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true and in the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. Now keep in mind, God the Father is absolute truth. He is true. Satan is the counterfeit father and he is the liar. This is the contrast that the Bible presents. So verse 27, uh, they did not realize he had been speaking to them about the Father. 
So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. So again and again and again, he's giving them the paterology here in this chapter, the doctrine of God the Father. Then he says, if, uh, then some actually get saved. And, and they, some came to believe in him. Many came to believe in him in verse 30. So then he tells those that believe in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. All right, get down further in the chapter. There's more conflict here with my father and your father. He says in verse 38, I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Now, right there is the first little glimpse that he's made a distinction. That there's two competing fathers in this cosmos. And God the Father is the one we need to be serving. God the Father is the one we're born from when we're born again. But Satan is also a father. He's the father of this fallen evil age, this fallen world. You have your father, the devil. That's what, it, that's what this is leading to. But he, he just presents it kind of uh, in an introductory way here in verse 38 when he says, my father and your father, indicating, hey, we got different fathers. <laughs> So now they're practically indignant and they say, Abraham is our father. (laughs) Oh, really? So he said, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Is that so? Yeah, you may be racially Jewish, but you don't have the faith that Abraham had. You're seeking to kill me, a man who told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham didn't do this. You're doing the deeds of your father, and it's not Abraham, and it's not God the father. So they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now back then it was insulting to question somebody's parentage or to question who someone's father might really be. Um, not illegitimate, not bastards. But, and, and they, I think there's a subtle jab here too at the Mary and Joseph circumstances whereby it became known that she was pregnant prior to the, uh, the wedding whether they're jabbing at him or that, is, uh, they probably were. I mean, imagine what the, the background check they did on him, scoping him out in, the, in their opposition, in their hatred. So Jesus says to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not co- even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. And the comprehension barrier that happens there is not linguistic. He was speaking Hebrew, they were speaking Hebrew, or whatever, they were, Aramaic, Greek, whatever they were speaking. They were speaking human languages, but without spiritual ears to hear, how do you process divine truth? The natural man cannot process spiritual truth. They must be spiritually appraised. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. That's how it's structured. That's how it, it's, uh, this, this whole language, this whole metaphor is designed to communicate this. So the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whereas we learn from John 1, 1, what was in God, what was in Christ. We have light, we have truth, we have life. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
And so ultimately speaking, the angelic conflict is described from Genesis to Revelation. It is the lie against the truth. Thankfully, the truth wins because <laughs> we're born of the Father. Now, all of this we understand, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Isn't that something? Those that are speaking the truth are attacked by those who hate the truth. Becomes revolutionary in one sense. All right, so we have that. Going back to Isaiah 14, I'm out of time. Next week we'll come back to this because I think looking at Satan and looking at how he fell, looking at the lies, looking at the pride, looking at the consequences is useful. And then seeing the nevertheless statements about him perishing. About him perishing. And that's what we have to deal with there. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for protecting us. Thank you for keeping an eye on things and all your grace, Father. I thank you for this truth. I pray that we would learn the nature of truth, the blessings of speaking truth, the nature of lies, and the judgment that comes from serving your adversary, our adversary, the devil. I pray that we learn these things and make application on the basic level, intermediate level, advanced level, and every in every aspect of it, Father. Open our eyes to the totality of your plan from Alpha to Omega. Show us the seriousness of, uh, of our priestly function before you. Your Son came to reconcile us to you so that he might present us before you holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Father, lies cannot have any part of that. And so I pray that we would be making these applications even as we learn this doctrine, that we can function as a powerful segment of, our, of, uh, of your priesthood in Christ. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.